Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. What is the number? I know many people who want to retire. I know many people who want to not worry about money. I know many people who are scared and anxious, particularly given everything that's all the economic uncertainty uh, lately. What is the number you need so you can retire or at least not worry about money? And there's a lot of different answers. And there's a lot more factors that go into this. I, when I, You'll listen in this podcast. I started off thinking it was a relatively simple mathematical equation. It is not. There is so many more factors to consider. I brought on my good friend, Merrick First, official genius. I don't know how best to describe him. I, I met him because he was the dean of students that threw me out of graduate school. And then we became friends after that. Every now and then, he has come on the podcast just to provide his super insightful questioning. He's not afraid to ask the hard questions and the smart questions. And here we are trying to figure out what the number is. If you like this episode or have similar kind of questions, you can tweet at me. You can email me at altature at gmail.com. You can write a review. It's always really good for me if you write a review. I super appreciate it. Here we go. What is the number? And it is not what you think. I, I'm recording right now, so you guys can start whenever you want, or you guys can talk. It's all, it's just, it's, it's up. What's, yeah. with me. <laughs> How do you know when you start when you're talking to James? Uh, you're, always, you're always starting. I know. Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes we pick a specific point, sometimes it just happens. So, um, but Jay, uh, what do you think of this idea, doing the number? The number? What do you mean by number? The, you know, everybody has the number that they're looking for. Oh, I like it. The thing is, yeah, I don't know what my number is. Like, well, well we're going to give you a technique to figure it out right now. We are. <laughs> As a defined number, though. I need to know. Can you tell me whether I'm above or below the number? So <laughs> the question is, if you can say, Merrick, what number do you think you need? What num- and, and is that number different than what you would like to have? So, And by number, of course, I mean a financial number that achieves some almost like six-year-old goal you had, like a goal you had when you were six. Like when we were six years old, we wanted to have like a billion dollars. We read about Howard Hughes. We read about Rockefeller. At and least you think that's I true? Six. I don't think I was, when I was six years old, I wasn't interested in money at all. Oh, in I was fact, reading like biographies of Howard too. Hughes and, and yeah. Rockefeller Bye. and Carnegie. Were you when yeah. you were six? Yeah. I was, I, was interested in, I was interested in science. I was interested in like figuring out how to be, do something that would actually last for some length of time. And I, I was in a family that was very, we didn't have any money. So people would walk around and say, we have no money, but we have love. 
that was probably just an excuse because we didn't have any money. But it was uh, it was totally not in my mind. In fact, I was totally oriented away from money. I thought people with money were were not okay. Okay, well, so we're going to talk about what is the number that people need and how to calculate. I want to know what does the number mean, right? So the number, the problem with the number is it's just a number. So like, what does it mean to retire, to do what you want to do, to not worry? What what does a number do? All three, all three, or some combination of the three. So for some people, it means I want to live a lifestyle where I don't have to worry. For some people, it means I want to live my current lifestyle and never have to work again because of the money I have in the bank. And that has multiple meanings. And for some people, it means I want to have more than what I have. And, you know, I want to don't, I want to buy a private jet. I want to buy a baseball team. And so for them, the number means something else, but I, I tend to focus on how can you live your current lifestyle plus some, some mild improvements that you would always like to have. Um, and, and do it comfortably without ever having to work again. Like you can literally just watch TV yeah, for the rest I've, of your life. I've heard people describe that as being financially weightless. So you, yes. you sort of break the bounds of grav of financial gravity. So you sort of, you can, you can float. You're not doing things for the money, but you have the money and you can do the things that you need to do. It's kind of like you're buoyant. Exactly. Like, like, you know, you've had business success, business failure. I've had obviously business success, business failure. And sometimes there's that pit in your stomach where it's like, how am I going to be able to feed my family? How am I going to be a success? Because money also, and I believe you have this on one of your profiles somewhere. I think this was on your ICC profile is net worth life's rating, just like chess rating measures your chess worth. I said that? No, for sure. It wasn't me. Or no, someone it, was else definitely you. it was definitely you. It was on your ICC profile. Really? Internet chess club profile. In a different lifetime. That's so interesting. But anyway, going back to this number thing, here's one of the things I have a puzzle with with numbers. So I look at my bank account and I can see what the number is, or I can talk to a financial person and they sort of sum up all the assets and subtract the liabilities. Although in the United States, they seem to take liabilities and the assets and add them together as positive numbers. But anyway, and you see this number and I try to figure out like, what does that number actually mean? Like, and then I go in my own head, I think, well, and then what if the stock market crashes? And what if, you know, what if the pandemic like lays waste to something or what if something else happens and go to war? Do you ever feel secure? I know from myself, thinking about the number and looking at it as a way of becoming secure has be has never really been satisfactory. Yeah, I, I agree with that, by the way. So when calculating the number, another aspect of that is so so if if you're calculating on living off of you know either the interest or dividends or the yield whatever your money generates for you like out of a savings account or the stock market you have to take into account whether that's a reasonable like if you think you can make seven percent on your money how are you making seven percent is that a reasonable um assumption what are the risks in that and for me when i'm calculating the number you have to be very conservative on how you're making I would never say 7%. That seems impossible to me in terms of like- The rule of thumb that most people I talk to say is 4%. Just right. sort so, of figure so on living on 4%. 4%, um, I think even, uh, I, that's been discussed also on a lot of podcasts and in a lot of books. I even think 4% is a little bit high if you're, if you're taking into account risk because we live in a no yield world. Savings accounts have 0%. So 4% assumes some dividends from the stock market. Perhaps that's the easiest way to assume that. And I agree. I am in all cash. I have a few stocks that don't have played. Are you really? Yeah. So you've really missed a big run up here. 
Yeah, but that's okay. I have other ways. My money, everybody always says, make your money work for you. I work hard enough. I don't need my money to work also. I'd rather my money just rest and take it easy. <laughs> okay, it worked hard to your get money, to me. Your money's gonna wither away if you let it rest for too long. So I like, I, but, I, but it allow, when my money rests, it allows me to sleep at night. So if my money is not in the stock market when a pandemic starts, I can sleep at night. And so, but this is all, let's first calculate the number and then let's calculate what that means. In but, terms okay, of so but I'm still, here's where I get confused with the, about the number. There are these risks I don't know how to quantify. So um, I have a friend who said, who's convinced me that the number one risk you have, think about a number in terms of like being able to live on the, on the amount of money you have, is that you have a medical risk. And when he said that, I thought, oh, you're thinking like I might have a heart attack or something. I'm in good shape, so I hope I'm not gonna have a heart attack. He said, no, the medical risk is that they'll figure out cures for so many diseases that you'll live longer than you expected to live. Yes, and I agree said, with In that. this environment, that's really a possibility. And nobody seems to know how to actually calculate that or discount for that. I agree with that, actually. I literally got anxious about that a few months ago after I had a podcast with David Sinclair. He's a researcher slash PhD at Harvard who specializes in viewing aging as a disease. He wrote a book called Lifespan, which is really excellent. And he summarizes all the latest research on anti-aging. It's not unreasonable to think we might live to be 120 or longer. There's a lot of reasons for that. It seems ridiculous, but there's a lot of amazing research happening right now. And there's a Moore's law of that as well. Do we get to be compass mentis? I mean, because I've, I've yes. known way too many people who seem to lose their minds, maybe me included. And <laughs> yeah, the idea yes. of living that long with a, a, with a, a being demented, maybe it's not so bad for you if you're demented, but it's pretty awful for your family. But the whole idea is, is that it, it's 120 with high quality of life. Because if you look at like Alzheimer's and dementia are one of the main causes of death. So when you're view, viewing aging as a disease, Alzheimer's is a symptom and you have to be able to, uh, you know, by solving aging as a disease, you also solve things like Alzheimer's and cancer and things like that. So, so that's very much part of his research and, and you keep high quality of life. So maybe, but you know, so that I think this question of like how much you have, like you feel safe is, it's one question. The other question is like, is there like too much? Like if you have too much, do you start to have to worry about the money and it doesn't really help you with the kind of things you want to do? So I have a very good friend. What he thinks about this is, is a certain amount of money that he wants to be able to do things with just his lifestyle. And there's, there's a limit to that because, you know, even how many houses could you have if you were super, super wealthy and how many places can you live at once? But there, there's certain things that he has to, he has to maintain that. And that's like a certain level, but then there are things he wants to do. Like he wants to support entrepreneurs. So he wants to be able to put a certain amount of money into uh, helping people who want to actually make forward progress on something entrepreneurial. But then he also has uh, an interest in doing things that are philanthropic. So he wants to, he has many different interests in, um, in supporting activities, for example, in Africa. And my sense is even there you have a limit because the, the amount of work you have to do to be able to figure out where to put money in such a way that it's actually useful, it becomes a burden. So surely yes. there's a way to have too much money. Well, in, in his case, his number is just higher than other people's numbers. You could argue too much money is you have $5 billion and you don't, and you don't know what to do with it. So you just go crazy. Like you're gambling and, you know, drugs and hookers and all these things that when you were a kid, you felt like you wanted, if you had a lot of money and you realize it's not that great and you become miserable and depressed and whatever. So that's, that's like a different story. What I'm basically saying is what's the number where the, the very basic thing is, what's the number where you can retire and not worry about money for the rest of your life, even if you're going to live to 120? So then it depends on what your lifestyle is. Yes. So let's go top down and bottom up. So let me ask, like, there's your lifestyle, your current lifestyle, and then there's your lifestyle plus. 
I think you might be wrong. I think it's my current lifestyle and then my lifestyle minus because as you get older, you start to do less. Yes. Or so you, or you need less. It could be the case that that's how you want to live life. And so your number becomes less. If, if your goal is to make your number as little as possible, then you're going to calculate, you're going to do several parts of the calculation. You're going to assume your lifestyle needs becomes less as you get older. And you're going to assume you're going to be dipping into the money rather than just live rather than living just off the interest. So you're allowed to, I had a podcast recently with a guy, Bill Perkins, who's worth about 50 million. And he wrote a book called die with zero where he's assuming he can dip. He can live very well. Uh, but he's dipping into that 50 million and he'll go down to zero. Don't you feel terrible for him? I mean, you have to go down for the zero from 50 million. That's a problem a lot of people would like to have, although I, I suspect that they wouldn't like to have it. I, I wonder if he's happier than the average person is. I, I don't know. He seems, I mean, he seems to me very happy. Like when we, we did the podcast a few months ago, it was during the lockdowns and he was on a huge yacht in Croatia. And uh, um, I remember I watched his Instagram afterwards. He had just proposed to his his girlfriend, and he seemed like a pretty happy guy. And uh, we were having a lot of fun on the podcast. But let, let, I just want to make some assumptions and see. If okay, you're, go ahead. So, make the assumptions. I want to so, see how you calculate it. So the number, it, let's just define it like, like you suggested. The number is basically your lifestyle plus or minus some amount. And, and can, can I have lifestyle? So you're talking about that's spending. So it's lifestyle plus or minus, let's say a little bit plus but then also some cushions so you feel safe. Absolutely. Is we, it even possible to feel safe? That's what I want to know. Yes, that's important. So for instance, if you had a billion dollars but want to keep your current lifestyle when you were making, I'm just going to make this up, 100000 a year, you would feel like you're not worried about money then. That's an extreme, okay? So then you feel safe in terms of money. Safe in other ways, I don't know, but safe at least in terms of money. There's also lifestyle plus plus where it's like your friend. If he had money, that would change dramatically his lifestyle. He would start supporting entrepreneurs, doing philanthropy. And some people have, you know, even much higher uh, interests if, you know, much more expensive interests. Like Gary Vaynerchuk famously wants to buy uh, the, the, the football team, the Jets. So obviously his number is significantly higher for what he ultimately wants to do. But let's just assume it's lifestyle so you don't have to worry. And you may throw in some extra things that you haven't been able to afford previously, but you would like those in your lifestyle. I'm just making that assumption. Okay. So then what do you, how do you, how do you come to that? Does everybody have to sit down and say, what's their current lifestyle? Yeah. So, so I mean, here, there's the other thing that just, you're not factoring in. Like, so I have friends who have super amounts of money and I'm watching what they're doing and I'm thinking to myself, I actually don't know how to spend money that fast. Like right, I, have, so I have a friend, he's got a house in San Francisco. He's got a house. He's got an incredible place in Tel Aviv. He's got places in New York. He's got two places in London. He's got another place in Southern California. I don't probably has places I don't know about. And I'm thinking, I have trouble maintaining like this one place that we're living, which is nice, but it's like, I don't, I don't, so literally I don't know how to spend money the way he's spending money. So but he is might that not, the way it is? Does each person be, like have a way of being expert on their own lives and they're spending money? And so the question for each person is, okay, well, how do you spend your money? Or do you have to figure it out? Like, do I want to live like he does? He lives pretty nicely. So some days I think I would like to live like that. Is that the number I'm looking for? Maybe it, 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 that, that part is subjective. So let's just start off with the, the basics and then we could decide if that's you, cause his number, he might, he might be a beyond his initial number. So he's, he has excess and he's, he feels the need to spend excess or his number might've changed when he realized, Oh, I want five houses and, and spend lots of money. His number might've changed. So again, let's even take, go more basic. Let's start off with, you want to live your absolute current lifestyle 
Oh, and no more. And and you want and you want to be able to sleep at night and not worry about money. Okay. So then then what do you do? You, you say then it's four percent. You multiply by twenty five and you get to some place. Is that what you do? Right. So you already own your house, or but you're paying a mortgage and you take two vacations a year and you're done paying with your kids' school or your kids' needs. And let's say overall. Hey, wait a minute. So you ever think you ever think you're ever done paying for your kids' needs? <laughs> well, let's just <laughs> make an assumption. I don't recognize. Let's figure. Let's just make an assumption. I okay. think every generation feels like they're never going to live as well as the generation before them. And then eventually they realize they live better than the generation before them. So like, like in, in the early nineties, the assumption about generation X was that we would never have as much money as our parents. And of course the average generation X person has more money than his parents now. So it's just it, it, kid kids grow up eventually, but let, yeah, you're right. So let's say you spend a hundred thousand a year. Let, let's say your rent or your mortgage is 4,000 a month. So it's almost 50,000 a year. And you take two vacations, uh, you buy a car, whatever. And, and, and that's what you spent last year. Let's, let's just take your last year spending. And it came to a hundred thousand dollars and you believe that you can make 4% a year on your money, which means, you know, 4% is one twenty fifth of your money. So you would just take your annual spending and multiply by 25 and you have to bake in a little for inflation, but let's assume inflation is going to be roughly zero. Like the things that you tend to buy in your life aren't the things that tend to inflate. Like your house is already bought, that price is fixed, and that's most of your spending. So you don't have to worry. People don't have to worry about his inflation as much as they think they do. Um, it's not like your house is going to cost you more because you've already bought it and you're paying a mortgage that's fixed. So, well, so there's also inflation in the, in the returns that you get. So you hope it kind of washes out to some extent. Yeah. And there, there may or may not be, but, but yeah. So, so then you're right. Like, let's say you spend a hundred thousand a year. You're not going to change your life at all. All you want to change is you don't want to work anymore. You want to Okay. Play. But then you have another problem, which is the minute you're not working, what are you doing with that time? Are you spending money? doesn't matter. Do whatever you no, want. It could matter a lot, actually. I mean, oh, oh so you're saying, okay. But this is, this is, this is the lifestyle plus. So for instance, for me, my life, my lifestyle plus is I like my current lifestyle. The only thing I would really do differently is instead of flying commercial, I would fly private <laughs> because private is a significantly better experience than flying commercial. It's also pretty damn expensive. And it's expensive, right? But I don't fly that much. I don't travel. I don't take that many vacations or anything. I don't fly that much. So let's say you allocate uh, uh, 150,000 a year or 100,000 a year towards flying private. You have to now multiply that number also by 25 and add that to your number. Whatever your plus is, you have to multiply that so, so let's say you're going to play golf every day. And so you're going to end up spending an extra 20,000 a year. So now instead of a hundred thousand being your expenses is 120,000. So a hundred thousand times 25 is two and a half million. 120,000 times 25 is what? Uh, 3 million. That's your number in this very simple example of bottom up is you take your lifestyle plus whatever little things you want to add to it, multiply by 25. If your assumption is correct, that you can make 4% on your money, but we'll talk about that in a second. And if you're not dipping into your capital, because then you could run into the trouble. Well, that's your, that's your assumption that 4% is enough, right? So 4% is uh, more or less you preserve your capital. Right. If you're, if you're thinking of dipping into your capital, then it's a little bit more complicated math, but you don't, and if your expenses are a hundred thousand, you don't need two and a half million, you need probably 2 million, but I don't know. Well, but I, I still go back to the same thing I was asking about before. So this is like a rough calculation. You can say, 
all things being equal, you get 4% on, on average, maybe that even includes spending it down over, you know, however many years you have left, it gives you some cushion if you had to. All right, so you end up with two and a half million if you want $100,000 a year. You know, we have this financial analyst, I guess they're now part of Goldman, they used to be something independent. Here's what they do, they sit down and they talk to you about, you know, do you wanna have like a wedding for your daughter? Yes, how much will that be? You wanna, how often do you wanna replace your cars? Okay, what do you think the likelihood of this happening? And what do you think of likelihood? Then they run these uh, Monte Carlo simulations. They come out and they tell you an 87% chance that you'll be able, you'll have enough money or 93% chance you have enough money. And they ask you things like, how much do you want to leave to your kids? Like, and stuff that, you know, figure that in. Even after that, I come away from it. I think to myself, why do I believe any of this? Well, okay, but each one of those has some assumptions. So you want to leave money to your kids. Well, if you're preserving the capital by living off the interest, then you could just leave that money that's the capital right. to your kids. I'm just saying, but people, but there's this whole process of like doing Monte Carlo simulation, which I find very... Yeah, why would they have to do that? What? Why would they need to do that? I don't know. <laughs> I keep thinking that they need to do it partly because that's, you know, that's what they get paid for, but it's also partly because they think that it's going to make me more comfortable, but it makes me uncomfortable because now I think to myself, of all the things that could go wrong that they don't have included in there. And... Then I start to think about, is it all my risk is tail risk? My risk is like something really bad happens and can I be controlled for that? And anyway, I'm very confused about it. You help it. You're trying to, I wish you would help me get my number actually worked out. So I'm not all so right, anxious but, but, about it. Okay. But no, but that's really interesting that you're confused. So let, so does it help to start with like a basic bottom up? It's like, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Spend, so I've done, so I mean, I'm saying like, this is good. You can do money therapy with me, James, if you want. Yes. So, so, right. So, you know, I know how much we spend. I, I added just a little bit more assuming that we would have like more time and maybe want to travel or something. Multiply it by 25. And we look at the bank account and say, you know what, actually, you know, looks like we could retire. And, and I still don't feel comfortable doing it. I mean, I, there are lots of reasons I wouldn't retire anyway, because I like what I'm doing, but yeah, I don't, I don't know how to go from the, the imagined number to the actual experience that the number is right. That's the right. So, so you're saying the actual experience, because if you hit that number, you, you, you think to yourself, you should feel relaxed. You should feel like, oh, even if the worst case happens and I have no work and, uh, I don't know what to do with my time and I'm not making any money, I can still survive for the rest of my life. That's you're feeling like that. Ex your, your, that experience should make you feel ultimately relaxed about money and somehow it's not is what you're saying for me it's, but, but it's why a big is puzzle that, why is that what what are the top three things that make you anxious about that i don't know how to connect the sense that we're checking out all the possibilities with what i think is actually true which is we're not checking all the possibilities well what what possibility are you not checking in that basic that basic fires, example uh i think i think we're uh, for me i'm i'm pretty freaked out about climate change it seems like how do you how do you plug in cl climate change and food insecurity and migration and and crazy politics into this? How, okay, how do you? And, you can't. And maybe also the problem is I'm so used to thinking that the way that I survive is by the, is by work. So now to turn that off and say, well, I'm no longer going to survive by work. Maybe that's the fear that it has nothing to do with the it has nothing to do with the number. It has to do with the mechanism by which I'm able we're able to survive day to day. Okay, so the, the the third thing is different from the first two. So climate change, uh, food, or political insecurity, those things you can't really protect yourself against. I mean, you can, but let let's hold off on that for a second because I just want to get you okay. satisfied with the basic answer because you can't even get to the more complicated ones. Okay, I'm satisfied but, with the basic answer. But but so 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 let's assume there's not going to be climate change. In Maybe say another way. So if you don't get to if you don't get to 25 times. Um, your current expenses, 
you ought to be worried. Let's say that. Right, is there something that, to wor- there's, something, there's something pretty problematic to worry about because at least in that case, you kind of don't have a path to be able to maintain your current lifestyle. That seems right to me. So, right. So if you don't have 20, and, and we'll talk about the 25 in a second, but if you don't have 20 times your, your annual expenses and assume your annual expenses stay consistent, if you don't have 25 times your annual expenses, you're simply, the answer is you're simply going to have to keep working until you have 25 times your basic expenses, assuming you can get 4%. Well, the, you know, the other thing you haven't talked about is the fact you can actually cut back on work. If you have the kind of work that allows you to cut back, you can start to cut back gradually on work as you accumulate more and you replace your, the efforts of your labor with the, the efforts from your money, which, which yeah, by the way, so, you pointed out, you don't use your money to generate money. So that's another whole puzzle. So, right. So, so for instance, how do you generate 4%? Let's say you need two and a half million dollars because four, because you're going to invest it all in stocks and you're going to get 4% annual returns a year is your, is the basic assumption. And you're going to make a hundred thousand a year. Uh, let's say after taxes. Uh, so the 4% means after taxes. And, and since, you know, you spend a hundred thousand a year and you, and let's say you have two and a half million in the bank, that's the number you're going to be able to live for the rest of your life because you're going to make what you spend and not a penny more, not a penny less, but you've, you've got it all covered. Now you're worried about a bunch of additional things like how do you offset the risk of climate change? How do you offset the risk of political or food insecurity? Like if there's a massive chaos and riots in the streets, two and a half million and the banks shut down, two and a half million in the bank's not gonna help you. But I think to some extent, you either can't worry about that or, or we'll worry about that in a second. Let's deal with risk in, in, a, in a second. The other thing is how do you generate the 4%? Do you have to put all the money in stocks in order to generate 4%, in which case you can't really sleep at night because what, I mean, during when they first announced the pandemic, the stock market collapsed by uh, 30%, which is, which would be a disaster if you were retired on a certain number, like you would be panicking and you wouldn't be able to sleep at night. So, so if you're relying on stocks to generate the 4%, you can't sleep at night because every day something disastrous can happen that you can't calculate for. So my I think 4% is reasonable, but you don't have to have your money work for you. You could, like you'd say, you could have a partial workload. So for instance, someone like you, Merrick, can give talks or do a little bit of consulting to make 4% a year on two and a half million. And, and you could somehow use the two and a half million to increase your chances of uh, getting 4% a year. You could write a book and the book can get you speaking gigs and consulting gigs or, you know, and now because you're, because you're quote unquote retired, you have time to write a book that will enhance your, um, ability to do, uh, consulting or, or there's other ways you could, you could learn another. So let's say you really wanted to be a photographer. So you take for two years, you do nothing but take photography classes and then you start photographing weddings and that's enough for you to make, um, 2% and then you write a book and that makes you another 2%. So you can diversify sources of income in, in ways that, are pleasurable to you as opposed to working as an accountant somewhere or working as a marketing manager somewhere. And so you could generate your 4% in a variety of ways. So you could put maybe some portion of your money in municipal bonds that are giving you 5% tax free. And you could also write a book, which enhances your ability to give speaking gigs, or then you could also take five years of photography classes, which has enhanced your ability to make money from that. So you could kind of diversify all these unique ways that are, uh, essentially stock market proof because there's there, a lot of these are unrelated to the stock market and you could still generate your 4% uh, 
Or again, you could maybe you only generate 2% and you're starting to spend down your money because you feel you're old enough, you're, you're, uh, you're not gonna live past 100. And so you calculated out that by the time you die, you've went from two and a half million to half a million. So you're still sleeping comfortably. You still leave some money to your kids, but you no longer have the two and a half million. So there's, there's uh, all these things. Okay, that so you, got, you sort of got, you got it bottom up and you give a sense of like, you've managed to eke up living, you're eking out right now, whatever that is, and you're living on it and then you're spending it. And you can somehow maintain that if you had at least, let's say, 20 times or some amount of that plus some amount of your own time. But what about the other side of it, which is how much do you need? How much do you actually draw on to have? Like when I was really young, I didn't want any money because I thought money was stupid. Then later on, we have kids and you have a lifestyle. You start to realize you actually money has a lot of utility in people's lives like colleges, which I know you don't think is a great, great use of money. But it, and, and, you know, it's nice to be able to make money available to people. Who needed it? If you can, if you can generate it, but you know, there's another, there are other levels of money. Like, you know, is it is it meaningful to go have as many houses that you can live in, or is it meaningful to be able to do philanthropy at a level that you actually could actually see yourself doing? Well, but but let's just say, in some of that is living beyond the number. So let's say you truly spent a hundred thousand a year. So now you feel you need two and a half million and to retire, and you know that your four percent, you could handle some of the call it sleeping risk, your ability to sleep at night, not worried about your money, you could get rid of your sleeping risk by diversifying out of the stock market as ways to return your three or 4% or whatever you feel you need. And then the other things like your financial advisor said, well, what are you, are you gonna spend for your daughter's wedding and how much does that cost? That you just, is just a one-time expense. So you need the two and a half million plus the one-time expense. And any one-time expense, you just need to add that to the two and a half million because you know that's gonna you're gonna subtract that you're, you're, you're oversimplifying because there's also like when does that when does that event happen and do you have the money between now and when that happens you've made me think of something quite different which maybe the people who are listening that don't have this problem but it's sort of clarified something for me one of the concerns that my super wealthy friends have is how much money they're going to leave to their kids because what they worry about is they leave the kids too much money the kids don't have incentive and they don't leave the kids enough money it feels like well you made all this money. I mean, I have friends who's, who they just orient their lives to thinking about how they're going to beat taxes to be able to make sure that their kids get all their money because they hate the idea that they worked so hard. Then I have other friends who think, how can I give enough money away so that I don't actually burden my kids by like ruining their lives by giving them too much money? But what I hadn't thought about until just now is, you know, that's the number, actually. The number, the number that you would leave your kids is your number because that's the number that you, that you ought to, that you see the problem is like yeah, you're, yeah, you're, you're standing back from someone and say, well, what number should they have? Right, and, but, and somebody you really care about, it's your kid. And so what's right, the number they should have? Forget thinking about yourself. Maybe that's too hard. Like, what number should they have? Okay, so that's worthwhile to think about. And and all these things are, issue, are issues. Like, for instance, if you die when your kids are 10 years old and you leave them tens of millions of dollars, hypothetically, maybe you will ruin their lives. But we're all older, right? My kids are about are all between the ages of 18, 21. They're about to turn into adults. Your kids are adults. It's, and we're not dead. Like maybe we're going to die 30 years from now. By then, give, leaving them my money is not such a big issue. They've already made their lives. They already have their personalities. It, I'm not that worried about- oh, like, So you, think, you think the number differs based on how old you are? Yeah. So like, uh, what, you know, if you, could, if you could, whatever the number is, let's say it's two and a half million or five million, pick a number. And you're saying, whether you had that now or you had that when you were, let's say 25, you think it's irrelevant when, when you have that number? Only to the extent that my annual expenses- change. So well, I spent more per year when I'm 50 than when I'm 25, because when I'm 25, I'm not married with kids. 
and I have a small apartment and I'm struggling and I'm, um, you know, trying to figure out how to make money. So, so if I just multiply by 25, what I was spending then, my number would be almost, would be trivial because I wasn't spending a lot. I didn't have a lot. I wasn't making a lot, but now we have a more like when you're over a certain age and your kids are about to become adults and leave the house, you know, and as you say, they don't leave as easily as you think, but whatever, if you know what your average expenses will be for the next 10 to 15 years, which is not unreasonable to predict, you assume you're going to make 4% off that you multiply by 25. Or by the way, if you assume you're going to make 3% on that, you multiply by 33. If you, if you assume you're going to make 10% a year, you just multiply 10. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over 100 or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period, and I loved it. I, loved, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs, and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests and having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away. And I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee and I still to this day get messages every day. James Aldercher, would you like to apply to be VP of en Entertainment at 
NBC or whatever. So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything than go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I'm definitely going to use HIMS from now Not on. Not that you need it. You're, you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might, you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the HIMSS app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at HIMSS.com slash James. Could you imagine that? There's a whole section just with my name on it. HIMSS.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's H-I-M-S dot com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. And let's take it another way. So I have a friend who thinks about this a lot. He lives in a place where there's a lot of people with a lot of, lot of wealth. He's convinced that the number is about 50 million. And I'm trying to figure out for myself, is 50 million right? So 50 million, if we, if we do the calculation, we're saying is uh, you'd have about 2 million a year to spend. What's he spend 2 million a year on? No, that's what I was going to ask you. That was my next question. So what do you spend 2 million on? I can see what you spend 100,000 on. And by the way, that sounds like a lot of money to a lot of people. But what do you spend 2 million on? Okay, let me give you an example. He's, he lives in, what city does he live in? He lives in San Francisco. Okay, so San Francisco, a not 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 the regular apartment, but a nice apartment. Let's say a four bedroom. No, if apartment. you have that kind of money, you own something. You're not paying rent on something. I think the money. I think it sounds more like like how many people can you give a hundred thousand dollars a year to? No, 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 no. You can you can spend two. You can easily spend uh, two million a year in San Francisco, and I'll just tell you why. R- rent and mortgage are the same thing, so it's about the same number. So a, a decent apartment in San Francisco. Not the best and not the worst. It's going to cost him twenty thousand a month, two hundred about two hundred fifty thousand a year. Plus, then utilities and other and maintenance and other expenses. He's going to be spending at least three hundred thousand a year just on his house. Yeah, I, see, I think you've got that wrong. I think you know if you have fifty million, you own your house outright. I don't think you have a mortgage on it. 
Because you, what you have to do is you take your 50 million and diversify. You have to have some of it in real estate. You have to have some of it in stock market. You have to some of it in bonds and some, there's a lot of there's some of it in, in venture capital. At that that paid at that point, you've got to put your money in a lot of different places. Okay, so uh, let let let's back off again. Where your lifestyle could be whatever. I'm just giving you one possible lifestyle where you make two million, where you spend two million a year. Let's say he travels a lot because he likes to see entrepreneurs all over the country. And let's say he tra- travels private. Well, assume on average, every time he travels private, it's going to cost $50,000 round trip. All you, let's say he does that 10 times a year. That's half a million dollars right there. Let's say he likes to buy his wife, you know, really nice jewelry throughout the year. You know, that could be another two, 300,000. So that's 800,000. You know, it goes on. Let's say wait, wait, you're running, you're running out. As you just say, it goes on. It's you're running out already. Okay. But like a basic expenses, like food, restaurants, all that kind of stuff. Let's say you spend $200 a day on food. All right. That's, um, 60,000 a year. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So I'm not getting to 2 million, but I'm, but, but see, you're doing it in a way that I'm, I'm not, I don't, I'm not really fond of the way you're doing it. Cause you're describing it in terms of like your own needs and trying to meet your own needs. I think $2 million is too hard to spend it on your own needs. The question is, what would you do with it? That is, like if you stood back and said, I have $2 million a year to spend, even if you spend half of it on your own needs, you're just, you know, like you're covered in gold. What do you do with a million dollars? Like, how do you, what would you do? Let me turn around and say to you, suppose you had 50 million and you could spend a million dollars a year that was like for the good of the world, or you wanted to do something meaningful with a million dollars, what would you do with it? Sure, but I'm, I'm addressing the, actual, the original issue is, I can easily spend two million a year just on my basic lifestyle, enhanced with a few other things. That's impressive. So, for instance, I uh, flying private will quickly add up uh, the number. You know, I told I told you your friend could travel just ten times. What if he travels twenty times? That's a million right there. So, let's say he has one apartment in San Francisco, one apartment in L.A. There's going to be expenses, whether it's property taxes, maintenance, or whatever that's gonna add up to another half a million. Now we're at a million and a half with just two apartments and flying private. And then charitable donations and, and invest in some entrepreneurs that don't work out. You could easily get to another half a million. Now you're suddenly spending 2 million a year and you haven't eaten yet. So you can get to 2 million a year if you live in an expensive city. The flip side is I wanna reduce my number as much as possible. So I'm gonna to move to India and I'm going to live on 10,000 a year. And now my number is less than 300,000. So there's that too. But just take your expenses now and multiply by 25. You still have problems with that because like you're worried, well, what, how am I going to make the 4% a year? Uh, what am I going to leave to my kids? What about climate change? Some of these things you probably shouldn't worry too much about. <laughs> like like know, which, one, political- which one shouldn't I worry about? You should tell me. Okay. Okay. Climate change you shouldn't worry about because every prediction really? is like 50 years from now. No, um, man, that you've got that so wrong. You've got that so wrong. So all the, all the dire predictions are like 2030 or 2040. But what do you think? They all start like at 2030? They've started now. Just go out and see what's going on in, in, in uh, Napa Valley. It's like it's almost become uninhabitable parts of it. Climate change is here now, and it's going to get worse and worse exponentially over the next little while. But what were the predictions in 1970 about climate change and about food insecurity? Food insecurity is a different story. But climate change, there weren't, I don't know if we were talking about climate change in 1970. Yes, we were. We were, we were talking about global cooling in 1970. And for, for, there was Paul Ehrlich's book, The Population Bomb, which I think came out in either... Wait, are you, saying, are you saying that you really think we shouldn't be worried about the effects of climate change now? I'm saying this it is shouldn't... A, this is a conversation I haven't had with you before. I'm curious about this. I believe in climate change. Everything shows that the climate is changing. 
The question is, is whether there's disaster in our lifetimes. If there's a disaster in our lifetimes where you truly, you know, can't live in the United States, that will override whatever your number is because you're challenging the basic assumption that life is not going to continue as usual, which is by the way, a reasonable risk, but it's not like you can worry about it. The way you can worry about it in terms of the number is by not only baking in a slightly higher number, but having access to assets that are banking system independent. So for instance, converting some of your assets to Bitcoin or having some of your assets buried in the backyard in, in gold, if gold is something that can be spent on or having like a compound in the middle of the country that nobody can get to that has food for 40 years, it buried in the basement, like in a shelter type of situation. Yeah, I think you gotta go to the middle of the country because I think the billionaires have already bought up all the places in New Zealand. Right, so, so I think this is a reasonable worry, but if you're just calculating your basic number, I'm not gonna worry about climate change. Well, maybe the point of all this, James, is that the number has nothing to do with the anxiety. And, and so, and so if, if the number has nothing to do with the anxiety, then you're just doing a straight calculation and saying, okay, here's what I believe. I believe 4% is a reasonable argument. And I can't, it can't be much less than that. And it certainly, and more than that just would be gravy. So 4%. Okay. So it's sort of in the middle. I think it could definitely be less than that, by the way. And then you just multiply by what you're doing and you're, you say it's not going to go up or down by that much. And you come up with a number. Okay. So now you tell people that number, does that do much for them? Well, it, it tells them. Suppose you, suppose you don't have that number in the bank. Then what the heck do you do? Because what that means is you don't have that number in the bank then you got to figure out how to like lower your cost of living enough to be able to start putting that number away. Is that what you do? Or, or figure out how to generate a little bit more income than you're generating. And so that could be diversifying your income in some way or building other skills or, uh, uh, yeah, reducing, not necessarily reducing your expenses. Maybe you move from New York city to Kansas city, and now you probably cut your, most of your expenses by either a half. So what do you do once you reach the number then? So part of your life you spend trying to reach the number. And then, and now you, and presumably during that part of your life where you started to reach that number, you're working a little harder than you meant to necessarily because you had to spend some of your effort to get the number. So now you reach the number. So now you don't have to work the extra to make the number. In fact, you don't have to work at all because you got the number. Now what do you do? Well, you still have to uh, make that 4% per year. And so that for me is a risk. I don't even know if 4% is the right number. I, but you're, I not, actually... you're, not, you're presumably not spending the number of hours a day that you were spending to accumulate or to get to that place. Right, so your, your lifestyle changes because you don't have to work the job that you hate and you can figure out other ways to make 4% and let, okay, let's say you figure out enough ways that are diversifying risk enough that you can make that 4%. That doesn't mean investments necessarily. That can mean a, a dozen or so different vehicles for doing that. Then yes, that for, for people who just have number anxiety, that should 100% solve their number anxiety. Now you're asking like, um, how much do you leave to your kids? I'm not worried about that because my kids are going to be 50 years old or more by the time I die. And presumably I, I'll try to leave them as much money as I possibly can at that point. It's not going to ruin their, if their lives are either ruined or not by that point. Uh, climate change is something completely out of my control. So I'm not, maybe you can add in a little to take into account that you might be moving or that you might have to buy some kind of equipment or whatever. So you could add to your number a little bit to take into account food insecurity or climate change. But ultimately, if things go really bad on these high grade risks, then you have more worries than number. That's a different anxiety. That's like life, world anxiety, not number anxiety. But here's my assumption too. Your expenses are gonna go up a little. Like I said, instead of flying commercial, if I had, I, I would like in my ideal world to fly just private. And, uh, and then understand, and then so that adds to my number. And the question is how much does that add to the number? So you see some people say, well, I wanna have a private plane. 
private plane costs $100 million. Or you could say, well, I could just charter every time I need to fly. So that costs $50,000 instead of $100 million. So there's just understand, like top down, this is where it gets to top down. What are all your dream things in your ideal lifestyle? You could probably- then you have to ask me, how much money do you need to figure out how much money you need? So, cause then, cause you, like you figured out what you, what, you know, what you spend now, given what you do now. And then you're thinking that you're not, tr- I don't know if it's true that you're not flying private because you don't have the money. So we had that situation just this summer. So our, our daughter got married. She was supposed to get married in December. And it was gonna be a nice wedding. It was gonna be, they had some idea of um, being underneath the stars for their wedding. They got enamored of this gemmated meteor shower. And so they said it was actually just supposed to happen last week, December 12th. And and we were all planning this wedding. We we're going to go out there. But then as soon as the pandemic hit, we realized we couldn't go out there. They decided to sort of COVID elope, I call it, in Seattle. They decided to get married in the middle of the summer. And April and I decided we were going to go out there if we could. But it was scary to go out there. We're old enough that it was worrisome to go on airplanes. We couldn't convince ourselves at the time that it was safe to fly. So we decided to look into driving. And it turns out we couldn't convince ourselves it was reasonable to drive. And then we looked into uh, RVs. And that was such a hassle. So I looked into private jets and I got, I got two quotes. Uh, the first one, the guy said he was doing me a favor at $67,000 round trip. And the second one was actually a friend of a friend and he said, he'll, he'll do it, but you got to put up, the, you got to put up the pilot and the crew and the, uh, for the week that you're going to be out there. And it was $43,000. So, you know, the truth is we could afford $43,000. It, it's not, you know, it's a lot of money, but it's, you know, it's like how much was the wedding going to cost? So, but we couldn't bring ourselves to do it because it seemed like an incredibly stupid way to spend the money, even if you have it. So here's what I'm wondering, like, even if you have the money, would you fly, would you fly, would you charter? Because it's such a stupid amount of yeah, money. Yeah, but this is where people are different. So yeah, I would like, I would say, I would bake into my number that if I had the number th- three times a year, I would fly private just because it's so much better experience than commercial. And even though it's it so saves stupid, you time, by the way, but pe- the reason that the people, people at some point when people have enough money, what they seem to do is they seem to buy time. So right. one, of the, one of the first things people do is they hire a chauffeur, for example. And then one of the next things they do is they start to fly private. And mostly because it just, it's a way of buying time. After you, after you can't buy things anymore, you start to buy time. Okay. But time is deflating, right? So a chauffeur, used to cost, let's say 80,000 a year plus expenses. So you'd pay for the chauffeur. Now, how much do you pay per year on Uber? That's your chauffeur. So Uber, That's maybe true. I spend 5,000 a year. So, so, and, and private jets, it used to be the case. If you want to fly a private jet, you need to own a private jet. That's a hundred million dollars. Now there were things like Jet Smarter where you can actually get seats on a private jet for $2,000. So, so time itself is deflating. You no longer need to rent a car when I go to a new city. That's $200 a day. I can rent a car for an, a zip car for an hour. That might be $20. So time is deflating. I don't need to cook anymore. Uh, I can use delivery and get a, a gourmet chef cooking food for me every single day for almost the same amount. It would cost me, it would cost my time uh, to do it myself. So time is deflating, but it might add a little bit. Certainly flying private will always be more. If you're going to um, buy time, you have to add to your number. But this is just the basic calculation. So here's the thing that, bug, that bugs me about this conversation because I keep trying to come around to it. It's just it's bugging me more and more. So where in this money that you're spending are you helping anybody else? When I, when I think about having the extra money, I think about ways to not use it to like save my own time. Sure. I'm thinking I would like to have the money because I'd like to be able to, there are people who could use it. The number of people in, this, in, this, in the United States alone, I mean, so you, you say... Two and a half million dollars to get a hundred thousand dollars in salary. How many people in the United States have saved anything? 
or practically anything. So what's going on with that? You're right. The average savings in the average American home is $400, which is why when this lockdown started, it was so critical to get a stimulus package that basically paid people to stay at home. All right. So what's the right number for that person? So $400 is like obviously too low a number. So what's the right number for that person? 25 times their yearly salary is completely unobtainable if, if they can only get to 400. So what's the right number there? It's still the 25 times their lifestyle. So they're not going to be able to retire. And yet they're going to retire. Maybe. People don't retire at 65 anymore. It used to be people retired at 65 because they had a pension which paid a reduced salary, like 60% of your salary with the assumption that you were going to reduce your expenses and lifestyle. But by the way, pension funds don't really exist as much anymore. It's now more, most companies do 401ks and you're on your own. People are have to retire later. But even more importantly to what you were saying, you could still use the basic formula. If you say to yourself, you know what I really want to do is I don't want to fly private. I want to be able to donate hundred thousand a year to people who need my help. And that's a reasonable uh, expense. It's a reasonable thing to add to your lifestyle plus, and you're just going to, you're, you're going to take your basic number, which is your annual expenses times 25. And you're going to add to your annual expenses, the amount of, that you want to spend on. Yeah. So no matter what you do, if you do this bottom up version, you end up with 25. It, it, it can't be much less than 25 times what you, I suppose if you're, if you're, you know, if you're in your eighties, you don't need 25 times because you're not going to live that long. Well, you're going to, but you're going to spend down your money. Then, yeah. then you, you, you have to work in the math. Like, are, am I going to spend down my number money? Am I not? That's the first question. The other thing is, what's the percentage you're going to make each year off of your money? But then the third question is what you're saying. Given that you have the money or given that you have the freedom to do this, what are you going to spend money on? Are you going to fly private? Are you going to buy a bigger house? Are you going to give X amount to charity each year? These are all important questions. So how many people do you know that have actually reached what you would think of as the number and they don't stop? They haven't actually reached the number. Many... Well, they don't stop because they get like uh, addicted to the habit of working. They, they, they suddenly have as a goal, I need a billion dollars to be happy. I need $10 billion to be happy. That's like a psychological issue, which by the way, I'm guilty of because this is the reason I went broke so many times is I would make my first company I sold, I made 15 million. And I honestly thought I, I didn't, hadn't reached my number. I honestly thought I wouldn't be happy. And I put it this way. I said these words, I wouldn't be happy unless I had a hundred million. And of course, going from 15 to 100, you have to take significant risks. I lost on all those risks because I didn't understand anything about money and I went broke. And this happened to me not once, not twice, but four different times. I was mentally ill. But I'm just saying, discounting psychological issues like I had, what are your annual expenses plus what do you want to do extra with money? Like you want to give to charity. Like during the pandemic, this is, I encourage many people to do this. The people who had beyond their number or had their number, Every company, every store, every restaurant had a, a GoFundMe set up for their employees so their employees could survive. And I think it was very important for people who had money to donate to these GoFundMes. That's how many employees survived. It was like, that's how capitalism should work is that, you know, the, it, the invisible hand should encourage people to help those who are too weak to help themselves. So <clears throat> this is actually a segue. I don't know how much time you got. There's another topic which this relates to, which I've I've been having trouble thinking through and I, I wonder you think about these things so much more clearly than I, than I feel like I can. So what you just said is, just leads me to the following thing. So here's this person, um, I was thinking about, we had housekeeper, we had people used to come and do work at the house and when the pandemic starts, 
that's not okay for them to be here. And on the other hand, it's not okay for them to not have an income. So we didn't stop paying people that we worked with. And the restaurant that we, that we really liked, we didn't stop spending money at the restaurant, even though they weren't necessarily delivering food. Just as you say, there are these, there's these activities you want to, we wanted to have go on because it was important for the activities to go on, even though we weren't actually going to make use of those activities. But here's, here's the flip side of that. So, I'm, I'm reasonably convinced that the number of things that we currently pay human beings to do is going to drop dramatically. I believe that too. You know, we used to have to pay people for the muscle that they did, and that dropped dramatically. And then now we're paying people for the muscle together with the brains, and sometimes we just pay them for their brains. The machines are getting un, you know, unpleasantly smart, or pleasantly smart in some ways and unpleasantly smart in others. I'm reasonably convinced that the number of jobs that it's worth paying a human being to do is just going to go down dramatically. And it's going to, it's going to get worse really fast because what we've learned is once you can get one machine to be smart, you can get all the machines to be smart in the same way. And so these jobs are going to go away and they already are going away fast. So here's the question. How do the human beings participate in the economy if you don't actually need to pay them to do anything? And, and, I, and I have a thought about it, which I wanted to share with you, which is like, this is like I'm getting, there's a long way to get to a thought. You can tell me how stupid this thought is. I think we need to pay people to be customers. It's like the reason you want to pay restaurants to be around is because you need them to be around to do the thing that you want them to do. But what is it that people actually are doing in this economy if they're not working, they're not producing, they're consuming? So I think we need to pay people in order to be on the other side, to have demand, in order to make it worthwhile for the machines to work. So it's very interesting because... Um and this is not totally unrelated, but I, I, I see what you're saying. So first off, this was a big issue in the presidential election, right? Because Andrew Yang was talking about universal basic income. By the way, the last presidential candidate to talk about something like this, or the first one, I should say, was Richard Nixon. So Richard Nixon proposed, along with the help of Milton Friedman, a, a, a negative income tax so that at some point, people who were either below the poverty line or losing jobs because of advanced technology would get a negative income tax. The IRS would... Um, provide them with money. If their income was too low, there would be a percentage of your normal expenses that would be paid to you in negative income. So UBI and negative income tax are the same thing. The reason I bring this up is because one of the problems I brought up with New York City is that a lot of times when somebody gets paid in New York City before the pandemic, they would use some of that money to buy, go to local restaurants, go to local clothing stores, go to, you know, and if you go buy your newspaper at the newspaper stand, the newspaper guy buys flowers at the flower stand. The flower guy buys cigarettes at the deli. And so money circulates around. So $1 in New York City maybe creates $10 of prosperity in New York City because it circulates around. But because of Amazon during the lockdown, if you got paid a dollar, your dollar instantly went to Amazon. So I thought of this idea related to what you're saying, and it fits in very well with the idea of you pay, being paid to consume. Instead of a negative income tax, I wanted to do a negative sales tax. So when you, let's call it New York City bucks, when you buy locally, instead of paying a sales tax, you get a negative sales tax. You get New York City bucks after you buy locally. The New York City bucks can only be spent in New York, nowhere else, and after 10 years, it's converted one-to-one to dollars. And there's various ways to implement that. That's not important. Wait, so let's say I buy a $10, let's say it's a 10% uh, New York City tax. So I buy something for $10 and now I have a $1 New York City credit or something that I can, that I, that I can only spend it inside of New York City? Right. You get, you get a dollar of New York City bucks, however that's implemented. You get an actual dollar back 
and you can only spend that dollar also locally, and you can only spend it in New York City. And so this keeps the velocity of money high in New York City instead of automatically going to Amazon. And Am going to Amazon, you don't get any New York City bucks. And then 10 years later, after you got your New York City bucks, it converts one-to-one to dollars. So there's knowledge that this is backed by the usual trust of the U.S. government. So as much as anyone trusts the U.S. government, they can trust New York City bucks. That's the idea of negative sales tax, and it's getting paid to consume locally so that dollars are not, don't leave it. So just how does that work out if instead of paying $10 and getting $1 back, so I paid $9, why don't you just give me a 10% discount for buying in New York? I still end up with a dollar at the end. It's so that the velocity of money goes up. It doesn't matter that I save a dollar because what am I going to do with that dollar I save? I'm going to send that to Amazon. So I, I need to get only back dollars that I have to spend in New York City in order to get more negative sales taxes. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it's not that different than a negative interest rate. So I put money in the bank and if I don't spend it, I get the, the amount that it's worth goes down is what you're saying. So it solves a very specific problem, which is how do you consume more locally instead of sending your money to mm -hmm. Amazon? Yeah, I think it's actually a very similar idea to the one that I suggested, which is basically you're being paid a dollar. For doing this transaction, you're being paid a dollar to do another transaction. Right, but you have to be paid. You can't get a discount. You have to be paid the dollar. And it has to be in a form that is understood. Uh, let's say, again, I'm not getting into the implementation because the, impl the best implementation is probably with crypto, but that gets into a whole other conversation. But you get something back which has only use in New York City. A discount has use anywhere. Yeah, but the, so now I don't, I don't know. The unit, I, I can sort of understand why you'd want to make it be in New York City because you want to make New York City better and, you, and, you're in and you love the city. And I think, and I do too, that's not. But, but, but from an economic point of view, why wouldn't you want the person to be able to use the dollar where it's most effective for them to use it? And that should be no, up to you're, them. To you're decide. right. You're, we're, we're talking about slightly different problems. You, we're still talking about problems of consumption. I'm talking about how do you improve a community that's in decline and uh, you're, you're talking about uh, how do you help people who lost their jobs because of technology and how do you keep them spending? Some similar solution can, can occur. So if I'm a truck driver that lost my job because now they're self-driving cars, then you know, this is Andrew Yang's reason for a universal basic income. Um, and I think it could, uh, you know, my idea of a negative sales tax and his was a negative income tax. My idea of a negative sales tax is very, community-oriented, city-oriented. So cities that are in decline because like take Detroit where it was in decline because of improvements in how cars were built overseas and, and cheaper labor overseas, this helps the community of Detroit survive when you layer in a negative sales tax based on how employment is lost because of technology or, or changes in the world economy. Yeah, I see what you're saying. So it could actually be a little bit exponential. So if you say every dollar that's spent turns into a dollar ten because of some um, multiplier effect in the economy, you could afford to take that 10% and give it back to the person. And then that 10% gets multiplied by 10%. That could have an exponential effect. It should have an exponential effect because here's the problem. A city can't stay the same. It either goes up or it goes down. So when a city goes down, they get less income taxes, less sales taxes, less property taxes, which means they could pay for fewer services, which means when you're paying for fewer services like trash collection, police, teaching, healthcare, you're paying for future less services, fewer people want to move to the city, which is a spiral down. So this is what happened to Detroit. By the way, this is what happens in every single ghetto in the world. The average amount of hours a dollar spends in let's say a black community is six hours versus 15 days in a you know mostly affluent white community because in the black community the money leaves and that's one of the reasons why of many why poor neighborhoods stay poor because there's no velocity money in those areas as opposed to incentives to shop 
locally. So part of your problem will be solved by doing something like a negative sales tax or a UBI. I think the negative sales tax is more interesting because you could justify it as increasing prosperity in areas that were hit and increasing prosperity leads to greater taxes, which leads to greater services, which leads to more people wanting to move there. So how is it? So is it, it's a negative sales tax. So that you're thinking about in a municipality or in a government way, but I guess stores do this. You go and you buy something in the store and they give you a coupon that's only good at that store. Yes, but but realistically, people don't just shop at one store. Uh, uh, you know, there's 80,000 small businesses in a large city. No, we're just trying to think of other places where, where people are doing it, where it might be effective and we can go see what the actual effect is. Think of it as like miles on an airplane. This wasn't a very, an extremely effective marketing strategy. Like this is why they did, did it for 30 years. And coupons work. This is why companies do it. But this is like couponing for an entire city or, or state or maybe technology. So like every time you buy a truck, uh, if you're buying it from like a, a human truck or whatever, a human driven truck, you're, I don't know, I'm just trying to think of how this can apply to industries so that your, your universal basic income isn't just given to everybody, even the wealthy or the people who don't need it. I'm trying to make it either industry specific or geography specific. And, and we start to solve your, your problem that way, thinking in terms of these out of the box, either negative sales tax or negative income tax. I don't think we've solved it, but I think it's interesting. Well, but then, and then the other issue is how much of that is a problem. So you look at like ATM, when, when the invention of the ATM came around, uh, bank tellers were afraid they would lose their jobs, but, uh, it turned out that ATMs were so profitable that banks started setting up branches on every corner in the city. And they actually had to hire, hire more tellers rather than less tellers. So what's an example of an industry where that lost their jobs? But I don't think that's true about banks. The local banks have more to do with where people open accounts. They know that if you open a branch locally, they are more likely to get a local person, but also the, the local branches are catering to the small and medium businesses locally. Yeah. But I'm thinking about like the, the, the JP Morgan's and the chases of the world, the city banks of the world, where they were the first to set up ATM machines. And the danger was hundreds of thousands or tens of thousands of bank tellers would not have a job because the ATM machines were going to replace. What, are, what, what did happen to bank tellers? Is that not a smaller no. number now than it was before? Do you know that? No, it's a much larger number because the, again, profits created the incentive to create many more branches and offer more services and bank tellers became more necessary. There's many more bank tellers now. There's many more branches now than because of the rise of ATM machines. So here's the argument with truck drivers. And by the way, then I'll explain Andrew Yang's reaction to this when I talk to him about it. So Andrew's big example is truck drive. There's three and a half million truck drivers and there's no automated driving yet for truck driving. But this will be the first industry that is automated by self-driving. All highway driving of truck drivers will be automated, or let's say 75% of it will be. So what will happen to those three and a half million drivers? And so my question was, well, if it's all automated driving and obviously self-driving, they don't need to rest. It's robots don't need to go to sleep. You're going to have many more goods shipping across the country. And so you're going to have many more need there's not going to be self-driving in the last mile, like on the city streets. So you're going to have many more, they're going to have much more need for drivers driving, human drivers driving the last mile. So the truck drivers will switch to a vast increase in last mile driving, where they pick up from the truck driving stop points and they deliver to the last mile. And, and that's how they replace their income. Andrew's point was, yes, that will happen, but we don't know the timing. We don't know if, if it just magically happens right when they lose their jobs because of automated driving, they will magically gain the jobs, you know, doing last mile driving. Well, and you don't know that the jobs will pay the same. And you, right. know that people, you don't know that people are going to be drawn to do those kinds of jobs in the same right. way that they're drawn to do the other jobs. So his response was, yes, that will happen in many industries, 
but we don't really know. We're just kind of guessing on that. But many industries, you have that example. When we switched from horses to cars, and Andrew talks about this in his book, The War on Normal People, when he switched from horses to cars, everybody naturally went from being a, a horse breeder to being a car mechanic. But again, his point is this is different. It's not a similar, now robots are eliminating industries for humans as opposed to switching industries for humans. And it's not like every truck driver is suddenly going to be a robot mechanic. But I like to think about it in terms of what's the unique thing that the human, like you have a dollar to spend to have something done. You need to get the truck moved from one place to another. You have no choice but to hire a driver now. So at some point you don't need to hire a driver. So what are the things that humans can do that machines can't do? And that set is getting dramatically smaller. And the set of things that humans can do that machines can't do seems to be pushing into things that aren't routine, things that require some ingenuity. Right. And that's at least in the limit. It's what's going to happen. And so there just aren't enough people around who, who can do those kind of things that require ingenuity that we currently have no idea how to make a machine do. And I'm, I'm concerned that we're going to start making it possible for machines to do pretty much the thing, all the things that we currently think of human beings could do, and therefore we don't need to pay human beings. Right. Maybe it'll be a long time, like, we, you know, human people are being used to grasp things. Like, I watch the, the garbage trucks come by in my street, and I'm thinking, how absurd is this? What are those people doing? They're driving the machine, and they're jumping off the truck and grabbing the, the can and putting it in the place that the truck can then pick it up and put it inside. Why? Because we haven't yet figured out how to do the grasping thing. That is, we don't know how to write computer code that does that. But we will eventually. And then you don't need someone to like be in the back of the truck to grab the, the trash can in its arbitrary position in the street and manipulate it. You'll have a machine that does that. So you, then that job goes away. So it's almost like the machine, like human beings are kind of like end effectors right now on machines. And that will eventually... I believe, be automated, then what are people doing? Looking for a rewarding, life-changing opportunity that enhances the lives of children in your community? Well, with almost 50 years of experience, Huntington Learning Center is the nation's leading K-12 tutoring and test prep franchise dedicated to shaping brighter futures for both students and franchisees. Huntington is the top revenue-producing supplemental education franchise in the U.S., and their proven system is the key to success for you and your students. The Huntington Advantage includes low startup cost, turnkey systems, dedicated support teams, national and local marketing support, and multiple revenue streams to help you build a life-enriching and profitable business. No education experience needed. In today's environment, the need for tutoring has never been greater. When you become part of Huntington Learning Center, you're filling an urgent need in the growing $5 billion supplemental education industry. To learn more, visit HuntingtonFranchise.com. Make a meaningful difference, pursue your dreams of business ownership, and be a positive force in your community. Don't wait. Visit HuntingtonFranchise.com today. I am so glad you convinced me that the family car should be the Defender 110. It is so beautiful inside. 
It's so comfortable and it just feels indestructible. Yes, it really is. I've been waiting a long time for the new model to come out. The Defender 110, I'm telling you, it's my favorite car of all times. It's my third one. You know, I have stories of going off road. The guy managed the group. He was like, what are you doing in this beautiful car? I'm like, I'm going off road. He's like, are you sure? Because you can use one of ours. And then they look like Mad Max cars. I'm like, no, 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 no. we're going to do this. And he was shocked. Wow. Well, it's great because the Defender has been reimagined for 21st century adventure and its unparalleled off-road ability as well as its robust interior are invaluable whether you're headed towards uncharted territory or just a weekend of exploration. The Defender 110 tackles challenging surroundings with absolute confidence. The SUV conveys strength outside and in featuring peerless technology like an intuitive driver display and an award-winning infotainment system. That's my favorite part, to keep you connected no matter where the journey takes you. Adventure is unique to everyone, and so is the Defender. Choose from the two-door Defender 90, the four-door Defender 110, or the larger Defender 130 with the ability to seat up to eight passengers. You'll find uncompromising performance in all three. So pack up and go even further with the Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at Capella.edu. Well, what do you, what do you think? Like if you were to tell a young person, here are the five skills you need, assuming a world that is, is exponentially becoming more and more automated, what skills would you tell them? Well, number one skill I tell them, I tell, and this is, I do this actually, is like I spend a lot of my life doing, I say, number one thing is figure out how to learn. So get better at getting better. That's a really important thing. Yes. And the other is try to figure out how to become of value. That's a sort of a, a core skill. How do you become a value? How do you see in other people's lives ways in which they can't do something for themselves that you might enable them to then do? And that's an ever-changing, one would hope that's an ever-changing thing. So you, you have to believe that in your life, you're going to have to find often different ways to become of value to the people around you. That's what I think is true. That's, that's, that's the core skill. I and mean, the rest of the stuff, I think, you know, you can watch YouTube videos and do it yourself videos and you can read books and stuff. And a lot of that stuff becomes obsolete. But like take these truck drivers, not all of them are going to want to learn how to learn. They're not going to want to be like programmers, for instance. Let's say programming is a skill that computers can't do and humans can. Are there any other, you know, you know what, do you, what do you tell them to learn? I don't know the answer to that. I think that that's, that's why I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> I think it's a huge problem. I don't know if it's a huge problem in my lifetime, but I think it's ultimately a huge problem for capitalism. The way I've been saying it to myself is there is this job that people have, which is they define the jobs. And what right now, the way you get to define the jobs is if you're willing to do another job that's already been defined. So, but what if when you define a job, the answer isn't you have to hire people to do it at all. And the answer is that you have to, you get machines to do it. Then you're, then what the machines don't know what to do. And so you have to somehow make it possible for human beings to engage in the economic activity. You see what I'm saying? Right now, the yes. human beings engage in the economic activity by both buying and by selling. And yes. what if they can't, what if they have nothing to sell? Right. So, so you mean in terms of their own abilities or their own ways to make money? Yeah, because they can't participate. Right. So let me ask you how you reacted to a situation that happened in our lifetimes. So 1995, 1996, it was a reasonable thought, and I'm sure you thought it, 
if this internet thing is for real, right? Not everybody believed it would be. It was still small. You know, Moore's law applied to the internet growth. But if this internet thing is real, what's going to stop people from making phone calls through the internet and all the phone companies will be rendered useless? What was your reaction to that? That's a totally different space. I mean, what I'm saying is, what was you? I'm saying, just think about yourself. No, but what, all the phone technicians would be out of work. But you're asking a different question. I'm, I'm saying you take a, a human being and ask, I need to spend money, and I have the only the only object in the universe that can actually do this is someone who's a human being. And the way we have that set up right now is human beings have the ability, the capacity to sell their own time. Right. That's what they can do right now. And suppose it's the case that we've re- we've taken the set of things that human beings can uniquely do for what the only way to get it to something to happen is by having a human being do it. What if that goes away? What if a number of things that a human being can do that are actually of use, I guess that's the puzzle. I mean, the number of things that uniquely you can do, like you can show up, you can manipulate things, you can think the way you think, you can you can talk, you can you can reason, you can have memories. That set of things, which enables you to then do a job, what if those jobs, can, anything that a human being can do, what if it could be done by a machine as cheaply or better than it can be done by a person? Then there's no reason to spend a dollar on a human being's labor. What happens then? Right. So, so I'm asking you this. Like in, in 1995, there were some things that humans could uniquely do that now they don't have as much use for, which is climbing up on top of a phone pole and fixing it when it, when it breaks down. Yeah, but what changed there was the nature of the job. What, as opposed to saying that a machine was able to then do something uniquely that a person couldn't do. So I don't know, James, I, I look at, I, I see machines now able to do things that I didn't expect machines to be able to do so fast. Recognizing things, translating languages, um, solving puzzles. I don't know where that goes next, but it scares me. But I'm asking, and, and it, I think it, look, I think this is why Andrew Yang's campaign got so much buzz was because it scares a lot of people. And so there's actually a, a, a deeper philosophical thing about this, but I'm just curious, in our lifetimes, has there been a case where computers advance sufficiently as to wipe out the need for humans that we thought, we thought was uniquely human a job, but then it turned out that computers were able to do it? Has there been a time? I don't know. That's a good question. I, I mean, I would argue there's been a lot of cases, like, for instance, analyzing x-rays. Computers can do it better than radiologists. But we still have people looking at x-rays. Because of the law, you don't need a radiologist to look at an X-ray anymore. A computer can do it sufficiently, but it's the law that a radiologist, a professional radiologist, has to give you the results of your X-ray, even if AI is currently doing it. Yeah, so, so there's but, a, I mean, that's one possibility. We'll use regulation to make sure that you don't get crowded out. That's possible. But, but that doesn't seem like the best solution. It seems like people should feel like, oh, I'm not just doing something because I've been saved by regulation, but I'm actually useful in the process. So, so. I, that's why I keep bringing up the phone thing, which is that everybody thought all the employees of AT&T were going to die, going to not die, but be out of work. And, you know, what ended up happening was, I guess the answer I was driving towards is that jobs were created, that industries were created that we had no idea were going to be created even 10 years later. I'm fully with you, except for the one puzzle, which is if you just ask yourself the question, is there something that it requires a human being to do it as opposed to that you could do it without a human being? That's, that's what changes for me. Not that the jobs themselves will change. It's that it, what if you have a machine that has the capability of a, of a human? That is, the, the things that you're willing to pay a human to do, a machine could be constructed to do. We're not in that situation now, but we could be. And when that happens, then you have a puzzle, which is what if you could pay a machine to do it, 
just the economics of it, it will be that you will pay a machine to do it. You won't pay a person to do it. Okay. So, so, and I agree with you. I agree with you 90% of the way there. There's a 10% that I'm holding back for a second, but is this similar to when jobs got outsourced overseas? So for instance, it used to be the case that only someone in Detroit can make a car, but now it's much better that to, to outsource this to Asia is much cheaper. Is that the equivalent, except you're saying it's going to be outsourced to um, AI and robots and so on? Well, I think it's, I think it's similar, except that there were still things to be done. But I, yeah, I think it's similar. It's not, it's not, that's not that dissimilar. So what happened? Like also all these people in the auto industry did lose their jobs and that's why Detroit is an Akron, Ohio are in the situations they're in. But like w- what actually happened? Where, what did, where did those people go? I mean, employment was at an all-time high right before the pandemic started. Uh, more people were in the labor force than ever. Where did those people go? Well, I'll use my 10% escape, which is they went to jobs that still were uniquely qualified to be human jobs because they required something that made it necessary for it to be a human that did the job. And you know, maybe the way that this doesn't work out is it always turns out that um, there's always some new job and you can't figure out how to make a machine do that new job fast enough. And so maybe maybe it's always possible that human beings can be are so adaptable that there'll always be jobs for people because when we define the new job, we haven't actually figured out how to make a machine do the new job. And so the people do the new job until you figure out how to make a machine that does that, then there's some new job that gets created. So, you know, it's like success always breeds its own problems. You you know, once you're successful at something, then you discover, well, there's a new job to be done because you have to, because the success you had with that old job has now created some new problems you didn't have before. So maybe that's where the space is for human beings always. I, but I, I really think we're making a mistake if we don't notice that we're now carving away from human beings something we never tried, we never thought we would carve away before, right. which is this ability to operate in, you know, intellectually or in, with, with a kind of, uh, with, some, with something like that we expected machines not to do like that we see like with playing chess or with or with protein folding now or it, it's just there's some way that I'm, I'm just saying i've been in this business for a long time you know it's like computer science computers aren't around that, that long and i'm watching it and i'm looking at it and i'm thinking this looks different this just yes. looks different maybe it's because i'm old and i'm thinking that it's i'm older and i'm thinking you know you get to a certain point where you sort of don't realize that that's just the way it's always been it keeps changing but I, I'm thinking this looks different and we ought to be thinking about it because some of the premise on, on the basis of which capitalism has always worked is that human labor participates on reasonable terms. Like you can, you can buy people's time. And I'm just saying, it seems to me it's possible that you could get to a place where buying people's time is not that the thing you should do with your dollars. But by the way, just that sentence alone, that's more Marxism than, than capitalism, right? Which is that time is exchanged for, for money, which is not, that's a Marxist concept and not necessarily a capitalist concept. And, and, and in Marxism, you do get very much into the problem that you have. Well, in Marxism, they, they deny the possibility you have that you can have rent and you can own things. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't have rent and own things, but I, I am worried that you have, that it's hard to get entry if all you have is your own time. Right. And so, but this, it's probably been the case every decade that there's an enormous number of jobs that you would not have even predicted that industry would have existed a decade before. So for instance, your kid now could make a significant living being a social media manager for personal injury lawyers. Like that job didn't even remotely exist 10 years ago. Nobody yeah, even thought about that. I hope we don't make machines that do that, but actually we probably do make machines that do that. Right. But then every decade, 
the jobs the next generation gets are jobs we would not have expected. Like my kids sell clothes they buy uh, or make uh, uh, cheaply and they sell them on places like Depop or Poshmark or Etsy, which didn't exist 10, 15 years ago. And uh, I'm wondering if, it, and now I do think there is still a problem, which is Andrew Yang's point, is that we can't assume when one entire industry collapses, magically another different one will pop up at the exact same time to handle all the fallout from the industry that collapsed. But then that's also suggests that it's going to all be instantly. What if in every case it happens over time, which does seem to be the case, no matter what the technology is, that it kind of happens over time. Like take the oil industry. It used to be you make money from the oil industry if you drill. Now, but the whole new technology resulted, which was 3D seismic technology, which is you can analyze land to see if there's any oil without drilling. So this eliminated the need for a lot of drillers, but it created the need for a lot of people to do seismic data tests. Was it one-to-one? -one? No, or I don't know, or maybe it was, maybe it was even more. But there's situations like that that never existed. Nobody would ever planned that they existed, but technology create, innovation creates new industries. So as long as the US and then the world is innovating, there's gonna be new industries for humans. It's like what you were saying is that, but, but, but the question is, is, does the timing always work out? And I think that's why you do need something like some universal basic income or something perhaps to handle the moments when there's a delay between the old industry being replaced and some completely brand new unpredictable industry rising. Or perhaps what we need to do is, uh, is subsidize more the creation of new jobs. Yeah. That may be the uniquely human thing you can do. The, the capacity to figure out what the new job is that you don't have yet a machine to do. But who is better at creating the new jobs? Is it the government or is it the innovators who actually do create jobs? No, I'm saying it's the innovators, but maybe making it possible for the innovators to operate might be important. That is actually making that be a job. What? Creating new jobs. I see. So, um, but doesn't it just sort of happen naturally? Like so far to this point? Maybe not fast enough. Maybe Andrew Yang's point is that you can't do that fast enough. And we ought to be paying attention to it from a policy point of view, subsidizing it. In some ways, that's what people say about universal basic income. I don't know. I know there's been studies on it. If you, if, you, if you make it possible for people to have a safety net, are they able to be more creative in the creation of new jobs? Because they don't have to worry about it. Right. So, so that's Andrew's point. And the flip side is, and by the way, Milton Friedman, who's usually considered very conservative, and Andrew's on the left, they sort of agree on this point. And, but the flip side is, from the right, is that they're worried there's a moral hazard when you pay people to just, uh, you know, for doing nothing. But let's discount that for a second. Like, I don't think that's a valid argument. But um, yeah, I think this is definitely an issue. I mean, Andrew Rang became enormously popular on that one platform, but I do think there are benefits to growing prosperity, which is that industries get created that we wouldn't have normally predicted. And I think that's not addressed in many of the arguments about this. Maybe this is maybe just pulling it back and then I'm, unfortunately I have to go, but I'm thinking, all right, so if you go to universal basic income, does that mean that there is no number? So you get the universal basic income and maybe that takes off. That's what you're saying that conservatives are worried about. It. Now people don't have a number to attain because they've already got to the number. That's if you assume that's a moral hazard. But I don't, I don't think, I don't think a universal basic income gets anybody to quote unquote the number like, you know, a thousand dollars a month or $2,000. Does a it month. change the number though? Um, yeah, it changes the number because you're, you, you, you it get changes the number by 25 by a factor of 25 minus whatever that is. So if it's a, it's ten thousand dollars a year. It's twenty five times ten. The change is number by twenty five thousand dollars, which is not that much. Right. You could subtract from the four percent. You don't need four percent anymore. You need you need less from your money because this is part of the four percent per year that you're right. generating. But it doesn't really change the basic formula. 
But actually, in some ways, it's like your negative, <laughs> I have to say, it's sort of like your negative tax. So if you took someone who was making $100,000 a year and, said, and you said, look, they're trying to get to two and a half million, that's what you think that they're trying to achieve. And then instead, what you did is you give them uh, $10,000 a year. Well, then they have an extra $10,000 a year, but it only reduces the two and a half million by $250,000, which is not a lot of money. So it sort of works out that they have more money to spend on a given year. Now they have $110,000 to spend. And they're still trying to get to two and a quarter, which is really not that different than two and a half. Right. So this is why this is the answer to the question of, is this a moral hazard? And this is my answer why it's not a moral hazard. But you bring up an interesting point. Here's, a, here's the flip side of it. Your number could also be zero because let's say we're always assuming retiring is associated with, well, I don't really like being a garbage collector. I'd like to retire from it. My month, my annual expenses are a hundred thousand. Plus let's say I want to give a hundred thousand a year to charity. Okay. Times 25, 200,000 times 25 is 5 million. So I, 5 million is my number. But what if you're doing a job that as Warren Buffett says, he skips to work every day. What if you're doing a job that pays you a hundred thousand in your expenses and you love it? Your number kind of is zero because <laughs> you would still, you would be doing this anyway and your expenses are all paid. You actually don't need a number. Or, or maybe you could say, I don't need a number until I'm like 90. Well, you need some number, which is insurance. Because sometimes, as you, you know, we've been just saying that some of these jobs go away. Right. They do go away. And if they don't go, then if they don't go away, then you have to worry about whether the next generation is going to be crowded out by the fact that you kept your job. Right. So, so, so you can make an assumption that I'm the type of person who's always going to find something I enjoy doing. And uh, maybe I'm gonna, there's going to be delays between doing one job to uh, to another, so I need enough money to uh, satisfy those delays. You could also reduce your number by enjoying what you do or doing what you enjoy. Well, also, it's not, not just a matter of enjoying them. There's also jobs, like April loves her job, but it's unbelievably stressful. Right. It's, it's just not the kind of job you can continue to do forever. It's just you know being up all, being up all night with with you know taking care of a dying baby. There's just a certain point where you're not 40 anymore and being up all night just takes a huge physical toll on you. So you have to factor that in as well. But you can, you can factor that in using the same math. Okay, from 40 to 70, I've achieved my number because I'm getting paid to do what I love to do. But I know from 70 to 100, I think I might live to 100. From 70 to 100, I'm going to still have the same annual expenses, but I won't need the number. So why have we lost, the, so why have we lost pensions then? Why have we lost defined benefits? So because, you know, because I live in the state of Georgia. It turns out if you if you a professor in the state of Georgia, you can at the start of your career you can choose to take take your money out as self invested, or you can go into this defined benefit plan. And if you if you you know work for thirty years for the state, they guarantee you an income for the rest of your life, which is I don't know what it was like eighty percent of your of your salary. So that sounds like a, so in some ways what you're saying is you don't need a number, uh, you just have to work. And and then and the, the and well, then the state takes care of you with the number you have. That's that's interesting too. For the reasons you've already mentioned, job uncertainty is much greater, and well, also the state's solvency is much risk is much greater too. Right, and also we're kind of making an assumption that people don't that many people don't enjoy what they do. So a lot of people don't enjoy working for, let's say, being a trash collector for the state. So they would like to retire. So they would need to know their number. And there's various ways of figuring it out is, you know, you can either reduce expenses. So, so you reduce what you're multiplying by 25, or you could switch to something you enjoy what you're doing, or you can, um, you know, get a universal basic income, which bridges you over to doing something, what you want to do. 
Well, so now it actually comes back to saying that you want to put yourself in a place where you enjoy what you're doing, and that's what the number is. The number is to get yourself to there, and you and you sort of presuppose that the answer to that is what you you enjoy the lifestyle you currently exist in, and so you need a number which actually lets you re- replace that with subtracting out the fact you're no longer doing the job that you're not enjoying. Right. How do you figure out how much money you need to feel good? That's that's really what you're asking. Well, well, and there's another there's another assumption too, which is that your wife eventually retires. She doesn't want to retire yet, as opposed to many people who want to retire instantly. She doesn't want to retire yet. But when she's 70, she might also be fine with drawing down on the number. So she doesn't need to make 4% a year. See, that I don't know that, I don't know that's right. Because I think people are all, I think we're all so confused about, because when you're 70, you know, what are you thinking? You live, you know, you talk to, I've talked to friends who are in their 70s and Here's what they, and they talk to people in their 80s, and people all kind of agree to the following for right now. Like something happens when you turn 80. Like up until you turn 80, you feel pretty energetic, and then you get to be 80, and all of a sudden it's not the same anymore. So your needs go down a lot. All right, so by the time we're 80, is, it gonna, is that going to feel the way it is at 90? So it's really psychological. You know, our psychology always seems to be like, you know, the next five years are going to be like the last five years, and that's going to always be, I think we're always going to be true. You can't sort of rational your way out, rationalize your way out of it and say, wow, I'm not going to, you know, somehow I deeply know I'm not going to spend this much money when I'm 80. And so, so if I look at it. No, no, but I, I'm not saying you could spend the same amount of money, but you're going to die. Everybody dies. So when you're 70, you're closer to dying than when you're 40. Yeah, but you don't feel so that retire- is what I'm saying. I don't, uh, you know, I know, I guess when you get to be in your late eighties and you sort of see it right there, I mean, I feel like I definitely feel closer to to that now than I ever did, but you can't really, you don't, and even if I say I'm living my life like that, I, it's hard to manage my life like that. Right. I agree. But that is part of the math is that you can just use insurance tables to figure out that, oh, I can, with, with being extra conservative, let's say all the insurance tables say, if I'm 80, I'm going to live to hundred. I could say, okay, well, maybe I'm going to live to 140, which no one has ever done before, but I'm just going to make that assumption. Still, you could you could take the risk of drawing down slightly on your number, whereas you won't be able to do that if you're 30. Nobody at 30 is gonna is gonna risk drawing down on their number unless their number is much higher. So, uh, and your assumptions about the percentage you make per year uh, uh, go down. So, uh, uh, I, I think at some point, you, if you're planning on retiring later, you could also plan on I'm gonna draw down. Two percent a year on my money, and not worry that much about it. And that's extra conservative. That assumes I'm going to die when I'm 140 instead of 100. So, how much do you understand about planning for retirement? I mean, I have no experience with planning for retirement. I mean, I, there's a retirement savings account. We put money away, and and my wife sometimes talks to me about a fair amount. Now talks to me about retirement because it's physically just so difficult that, that once you get to a certain point, and you've been doing this for a while. But it never occurred to me. I must say, it never occurred to me that I would ever think about retiring because you enjoy what you do. Yeah. So, right. So I wonder, you know, who are we talking to in this conversation? Like we're talking among two people, neither of us can imagine retiring from what we're doing because we do what we do anyway. Or, or, or we will retire when we're much older. And, and then the, the math is still the same math. It just, there's different numbers in there. There's 128 million workers in America. I think we're talking about a hundred million of them. Yeah. And those people are not coming to a number. Right. Very few of them are coming to an actual number. So right. So I'm explaining what is the number and, you know, to some extent. So that, should be, that should be terrifying to someone who's listening. Yes, it's terrifying. I'm not saying this is not, 
this is either a good conversation or a bad conversation, depending on who's listening. Now, the government has tried to buffer that, buffer that quite a bit with Social Security and assumptions about lifestyle decreasing, but that doesn't, and also Medicare, but that doesn't cover everything. People sometimes have to drastically reduce lifestyle or people sometimes, you know, I, I don't know what a lot of people do. And, and this is just one way of thinking about it, particularly if you want to retire younger, what's the number you need to maintain your current lifestyle or reduce lifestyle or an advanced lifestyle? You give the best advice, which is diversify, have multiple streams of it, have multiple sources of money. It does, that does two things for you. One, it gives you lots of different ways to make money, but also it reduces the variance. The thing that kills you also with the 4% is the variance. It's right. not that you either put your money into one place, it's going to give you 4%, and there's a lot of variance. So some years it'll give you negative 20%. It kills you. So the move to always be making if you can, but then how do most people, how do, you, how do, most people do that? Right. So, but by the way, this solves the issue you had, which is that you can't trust that 4%. So you still won't sleep at night, even if you have the number, unless you have significantly higher than the number where, so you're not as worried about it. But, uh, if you just say, okay, the stock market is return 4% a year, I'm going to put all my money in the stock market. You're never going to sleep at night again, because that's scary. And so just diversification is a normal part of reducing risk. And you can't just diversify by, oh, I'm going to buy Microsoft and Exxon, that doesn't work anymore. When you can't diversify if you have a job that requires you working a lot of hours for that job because you're basically doing that job. Right. Well, this is a really good point, which is actually a strategy point as opposed to a mathematical point, is that you have to, a job is only one source of income and yet it takes up all your time. So you have to start figuring out ways or reading about ways. And also we mentioned that and this was a new thing for me. You mentioned that the more you enjoy what you do, that also changes the math of your number because that the money you make based on what you enjoy doing is subtracted from that 4%. It makes that 4% easier. The, the money you're going to make per year becomes easier. So your number could be much less. So, or it's reduced from your expenses. So you don't, you multiply by your 25, but a much lower number. Let's say your expenses are hundred thousand a year but 50,000 of that you make doing something you totally love doing. Now you only have to ma multiply 50, but your number becomes 1.25 million instead of 2.5 million. I wonder if the answer to this part of, part of the answer to this is maybe we're making a mistake and I actually really do have to go. But I'm wondering if part of the way we're making a mistake here is we're saying there's this number and it's out there at a distance. What we really should be doing is pulling back to the ideas you often promulgate, which is getting 1% better each year. Maybe what you need to be thinking of is like you need to have ownership of something uh, more each year, which will eventually become something else. Because my own experience is you can't really get to the number just by working. That doesn't seem to really work for most people. Somehow the the, the working, you make an income no matter what you do, except in really rare cases, does it throw off enough cash in order to be able to accumulate something? So what seems to have worked for us was to keep finding ways to own something which can then appreciate in value. And only one of those things might be stocks, but there are other things you could imagine owning, owning parts of businesses, getting involved in other people and helping them in some way that they then work on something that you can have some ownership of. But that may be the, the important thing to be talking about. Yeah, yes. And actually, you just totally switched the question and the importance of it. You're right. Maybe the number is not the question. Maybe the question is the 4% or, or whatever it is to pay for your current living expenses so that you could reduce the number to zero. And so the question is, how do you diversify risk, income, and enjoyment enough to get that, that your expenses paid each year, and then your number goes down to zero because you're already getting the money anyway. You don't really need any extra number sitting in the bank unless you want to leave, leave your kids money. That changes the formula a little. 
Okay, on that note, I got to go. So enjoy, Merrick. Once again, you brought bring up such fascinating stuff. Uh, it's such a pleasure. And you've just changed my whole philosophy of this, which is to kind of reverse the question, which is not ask what the number is, but ask how do I generate that 4% and forget about the number? Okay, and James, you've done what you always do in our conversations. You've enlightened me and destabilized most of my good thoughts. <laughs> I'll see. I'll see. Let's. Uh, I'll. I'll. I'll see you on whenever we scheduled uh, that lesson. I'm looking forward to yeah, it. Yeah, me too. And Jay, nice. To, nice to talk to you, man. Okay. Bye. Talk to you later. Bye, guys. Bye. At Capella University. You'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.